0: Uh, a few verses tonight, verses 7 through 11, uh, Proverbs chapter 11, we've, uh, we already covered the first six verses, so uh, if your Bibles are open, uh, we'll pick it up with verse 7. If you need a Bible, raise your hand, you and get one put in your hand. Starting with verse 7, when a wicked man dies, his expectation will perish, and the hope of the unjust perishes. The righteous is delivered from trouble and it comes to the wicked instead. The hypocrite with his mouth destroys his neighbor. Through knowledge, the righteous will be delivered. When it goes well with the righteous, the city rejoices. When the wicked perish, there is jubilation. By the blessing of the upright, the city is exalted, but it is overthrown by the mouth of the wicked. Let's open in prayer. Lord, we're thankful to be gathered here tonight. Thank you, Jesus, for so great a salvation. Thank you for just giving us uh, your word, uh, which, though we might have read it many times, Lord, there's always something new, there's always something fresh, there's always something, Lord, that your spirit wants to teach us, certainly can teach us. Uh, Lord, if we're open and we're surrendered and we're teachable by your spirit. And so, Lord, we just pray that we would be uh, yielded tonight, uh, we'd, uh, Lord, each receive that from you which you have planned. Even before any of us were ever born, you knew we'd be here tonight for this study. So we pray, Lord, that uh, you would open our eyes, that you would draw us nearer to you. Uh, Lord, just melt away the cares of the day and anything that would be a distraction. And Lord, we just ask that uh, you would use this time to strengthen and edify and build up us, your children. In your name we pray. Amen. So if you were here uh, last week, we started off in chapter 11, and I, and I referenced the fact that uh, in chapter, uh, chapter 10, the word righteous or righteousness uh, is mentioned 14 times, and chapter 11, it's mentioned 13 times. So uh, and we talked about the fact that you don't really hear in the general conversations that you go through in life, you don't hear righteousness discussed a lot. You don't hear the word righteousness mentioned much anymore. Uh, because you know it has a lot of weight to it, as we talked about that righteousness. Um, the whole terminology comes from the Lord, and we know that uh, we talked about that right standing, that being made right, uh, is only from God. We 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 don't have the capacity to make ourselves in right standing or in good standing with the Lord. Uh, that is uh, a work of grace that comes through Jesus, who He Himself. Is righteous. We all agree with that, right? Uh, He didn't come because he needed uh, a savior. He came because we needed a savior. We needed to be made right. And so the term that you know maybe was a lot more normal in the church years ago is getting right with God. That term used to be uh, something you would hear uh, quite quite often, and probably in the seventies and eighties. Um, And even though that term can be misused, I think we've probably all seen misuses of that term, uh, There is, uh, it is a factual thing that when someone is saved, they are made right with God. And it is true that someone who is already saved and has wandered away from the Lord is no longer walking in righteousness, and they also need to be made right with God. So this uh, um, righteousness that God... Uh, bestows upon us, then we have to willingly choose to walk in it continually. I mean, I've been saved since 1995, and however long you've been saved, every day, even though you have the Holy Spirit bidding you to walk in righteousness, you still have to willingly choose to walk in righteousness. I mean, we could choose to walk away, but that would be the most foolish thing we could do. Uh, No matter how long you've been saved, uh, we still need to surrender uh, to the Spirit and to have the Spirit help us to walk in righteousness and remind us where there's areas that are, uh, that are out of balance, uh, that are not um, areas that uh, we would be, uh, be, told, be told good and faithful servants. So that we all have areas where God will pinprick those things and say, This is, uh, this is more flesh than it is righteousness. And we'll look at some more of this uh, in our Galatians study. On Sunday, we'll be uh, getting close to finishing up Chapter Six, which will finish the entire book of Galatians. So we'll look some more at some of these same things with the flesh and the spirit, and this uh, desire for the Lord to have us walk in righteousness. But if a person's unsaved, it's impossible to walk in righteousness. This is only possible once you have been redeemed, once you have been transformed. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things are passed away. You. You can't walk in righteousness unless the King of righteousness, the Savior Himself, has uh, shed His blood, and then it's been cover- it has covered. It's uh, covered our hearts and has changed us from the direction we once were on, which was always living for the flesh. And now we co- we go against the grain of this world system, against the grain of the pride of this life, against the grain of uh, the world system, and we pursue righteousness. We we really. Look for every way that say, God, I want to be yielded in this area of my life, in this area of my life, and just take over inch by inch, square by square, centimeter by centimeter of our life, and and this is a process uh, that God will continue to do in all of our lives uh, as long as we're here. But let's start with verse 7, because verse 7 is not about the righteous. Uh, It is about those that uh, are lost, those that are still in darkness, those that... uh, to date, would have been still in a state of rejection. And he says in verse 7, when a wicked man dies, and we're all going to die, but everyone's, uh, everyone's ever been born, unless, the, unless you're saved and the rapture would be the one uh, caveat to that, but when a wicked man dies, his expectation will perish, and the hope of the unjust, unjust, which is the opposite of righteous, the unjust, they've not been justified, they've not been made right with the Lord. Uh, then their hope perishes. Death, it eliminates and exposes every false assumption, every self-assurance, every misguided expectation, every boast of the flesh, every false hope, because all of these things uh, are commonplace in the world around us. People have false hopes. People have these false assumptions, these misguided expectations. Now, this is a very sad thing, but if a person does not know Christ as their Lord and Savior, if they, were, if they are living their lives as their own God, every dream they have dies with them. Every dream dies when they die. If they are their own God, if if Christ is not sitting on the throne of their heart. On the one hand, all people know they're gonna die. If you ask anybody. Say, will you die someday? Everyone would say, yeah, I'm going to die someday. And yet many live like they never will. And they do all that they can to avoid the thought of death. Just stay incredibly busy. Just stay incredibly driven. Just, you know, have the music up all the time. Have your earbuds in at all time. Be doing something all the time. I think the enemy in our modern age has come up with more ways to kind of drown out everything than at any point in human history. We've never had a time where, you know, mobile devices, radio, TV, everything is on all the time. We were riding in tonight. My girls looked over, and the car beh- beside us, my girls said, is he watching the news? And sure enough, the smartphone was popped up there and watching the news while driving <laughs> down the highway. Well, DirecTV said, take your TV with you so that people are taking this serious. But there's no slowing down. Any, anything to avoid the thinking of not just death, but anything of depth. I mean, death is a serious, uh, sobering thing, but just anything uh, of importance. But basically, when it comes to death, uh, if you never think about it, if you never ponder its reality, well, you can live in a make-believe world that life will just go on and on And And many people, uh, they would say they don't think that, but functionally they do. Just like some people are functioning atheists, they're not, uh, they would say, well, I'm not an atheist, but they live like an atheist. They live like there is no God, and people live as if there is no death. But the finality and the severity of death eventually, no matter who it is, shatters the attempts of man to ignore death, because death can't be ignored eventually. It comes to everyone, whether it comes as old age, whether it comes as cancer, whether it comes as heart disease, whether it comes as war, whether it comes as victim of crime, uh, no matter what it is, an automobile accident, eventually death comes to everyone. And more importantly than people ignoring death, they're ignoring Jesus. That's really what it comes down to. More, More than just ignoring death, they're ignoring Jesus, who stands and knocks on the door of every heart. And Jesus, of course, is the only hope in death, and yet people ignore him, and yet they live as if death will never come. Turn with me to Luke chapter 12 for just a second. Take a right-hand turn over to Luke chapter 12. You probably know this story, but this was a man who certainly believed in death, but he, pro- he just kind of th- thought the life would go on and on and on, as so many people do. Jesus starts off in verse uh, 16 of, of Luke chapter 12, and he says, Then he spoke a parable to them, saying, The ground of a certain rich man yielded, yielded plentifully. plentifully, And he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do, since I have no more room to store my crops? So he said, I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build greater. And there I will store all my crops and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, You have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. Verse 20. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul will be required of you. Then whose things uh, things will those be that you have provided? So he who lays up treasure for himself is not rich toward God. So you have this parable that Jesus says of this rich man that um, he had acquired a lot, and he was going to finally enjoy it all. Because he said to himself, I have many years. But he didn't have many years. And so the person that doesn't know the Lord, or even the person that does know the Lord, we don't know how many years we have left either. But we're not under the illusion that we have many years. I, I, I have no idea what God has in store for me or anyone else in this room. So we have to live for Jesus today because we're not guaranteed that we have that opportunity tomorrow. And we certainly have to put our trust and hope in something that will last past death because he didn't take his barns with him. He didn't take his wealth with him. He didn't take anything with him. He certainly couldn't control the destiny of his soul once he died. But before that, we have an opportunity to control the destiny of our soul. We have the opportunity to say yes to the Lord. But millions place their hope in themselves, don't they? Millions of people place their hope in themselves. Uh, Millions place their hope in a false religion. And it's one of our jobs is to tell people the truth and say, this is the way, the truth, and the life. Millions place their uh, hopes every day in just pleasure, and just kind of drowning out the things of, uh, of life. Millions place their hope in governments, both here and around the world. They, they just think that, well, uh, from cradle to grave, the government will take care of me. And again, they usually th- don't think about grave, just cradle till whenever. Uh, millions will place their trust in their employer. Now, if you've ever uh, been let go, or you've seen a company downsize, you start to lose trust in employers because uh, they can't be counted on uh, any more than the governments can. Uh, many people put their trust in their family, and, and that's even hard when you don't have a family. But those that do, uh, maybe their trust, there in a retirement plan. But all these things, uh, they're not wrong to have as part of our life. We all have elements of these as part of my, our life, but we can't put our trust in these things. None of those things are uh, a security Only God Himself is what we put our trust in. Uh, But we have uh, a certain hope, those of us that know the Lord, we have a certain hope that has conquered death. Because many people have already died before us, and they've died well that have died in the faith. They were confident in the fact that Jesus holds the keys to both life and death. D.L. Moody, you know, he had a great, great ministry both in the U.S. and, and in and in uh, England, in the late 1800s, and he said this: He said, "The valley of the shadow of death holds no darkness for the child of God. There must be light, or else there could be no shadow." Jesus is the light; he has overcome death. And when you think about that, it was it was an insightful um, uh, thought that he had: that there there has to be light for there to be a shadow. And the Bible talks about the shadow of death. But Jesus really is the light that has overcome the shadow. And he's overcome death. And so we don't have to, those of us that are saved, we don't have to not only fear death, but we know that Jesus has something far better. For the Christian, death is not the end of our hope, it's the beginning of it. That's the truth. Paul said, death, where is your sting? That grave, there's no victory. Paul said, he said, I'd, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. He said, I'd rather be there. But he said, for you guys' sake, I have to stay. That's what he told the early church. Thanks to y'all, I get to stay a little longer. He was ready to go. But death is the beginning of our hope. Death is not the end of our dreams. It's the beginning of of an eternal reality that's bigger than any of our dreams or any of our imagination. Whatever dreams we have that that are godly, death is not the end of them, something far greater, more than we could ponder. It's not the end of life for the believer. It's the beginning of eternal life and life experienced immeasurably more than anything we can comprehend right now. We can't even comprehend the life of heaven, the life of eternity. It's not the end of our health and well-being. We know that one, don't we? It's not the end of our health and well-being, but it's the beginning of perfect hell, a perfect body, a perfect mind, more glorious and more amazing than the pre-sin bodies of Eden, far more. It's the resurrected body of Jesus that we inherit. You know, the same one that people could t- touch and handle, and yet he could walk through walls. It's a glorified body. It's unlike anything that we have ever seen or can even understand. It's not the end of, for the believer, it's not the end of joy and happiness, but it's the beginning of joy and happiness, but the full measure of it. Now, we're already at the beginning. If you're saved, you already have received the beginning of joy and happiness, but the full measure of the, the, the final part of the marriage is when you're in the presence of the Lord. It's not the end of family, but the beginning of an eternal family reunion. An eternal family reunion and a relationship with our Heavenly Father and with brothers and sisters we don't even know we have. Isn't that cool? You're going to find someone from halfway around the world that you'll say, wow, you and I were a lot alike, and we never knew each other on earth. And they're going to be instantaneously, they'll be, there, there will be an instantaneous deep relationship as if you've known them forever. Because it'll be, it won't be people from different continents, it'll be one family. I don't know how it works that we all sit at the same table, but there's the marriage supper of the Lamb. You know, the, the, the dynamics of heaven are totally different. Anything you try and think of, and people try and sketch it, you can imagine they're very wrong. No eye has seen or even can understand it. And so Paul wrote to the Thessalonians, he said in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13, he said, but I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep. See, those of us that are saved, this term sleep is because we are, we're in a temporary, we're already in heaven. As soon as you die, your soul is with the Lord, but the body's asleep, and so the soul and the spirit is up with the Lord, but as soon as the, there's uh, the end of the age and God takes the old body and, co- and combines it with our spirit and the new body is given. So if you were to die next year or 20 years from now or 50 years, you're, you'll be immediately in the presence of the Lord. But the glorified body, that comes after the final resurrection. And Paul says those who have fallen asleep, those who, their bodies are still in the grave, but their souls are already with the Lord, he said... Do not, be, uh, do not be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who fall asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. There's the complete opposite of what Solomon's talking about here in Proverbs 13: is that those that are unsaved don't have hope. And Paul's saying, Those of us are saved, we don't need to sorrow like that because we have hope. We have the hope, the fact that we will have a glorified body, we'll be in the presence of the Lord, we'll be forever in heaven with God the Father. But it's sad that those that uh, die in this condition, when the wicked man dies, his expectation perishes, the hope of the just perishes as well. Let's take a look at verse 8. The righteous is delivered from trouble, and it comes the wicked instead. Now this doesn't always... You say, well, I I think I've observed enough in life where I don't think this has always happened. It seems like the, the wicked are getting away with a lot of things. Now this certainly does also happen in life, um, where we, you will observe this exact verse happen the way it's written, but the guaranteed fulfillment of this verse is in the life to come. that makes sense? The guaranteed fulfillment of this verse is in the life to come. In the Old Testament, you remember this guy Haman who had set out to destroy, he wanted to murder every one of the Jews. He was an original Holocaust uh, you know, dictator, uh, evil, maniacal, uh, wanted to wipe out the Jews, and so remember Mordecai. If those of you that've read the story, you know Mordecai had uh, a niece, and her name was Esther, and he pleads with her, and they fast and pray together, and and God intervenes in a great way. I'm making the story real short, and as it turns out, Mordecai and the Jews who he wanted to slaughter, he had built these gallows for Mordecai to hang on, but it, as it turns out, Haman hung on them. So this verse was actually literally borne out. In that story, um, the tables were turned on him exactly as it says here, the righteous deliver from trouble and it comes to the wicked instead. That happened in that case. Um, Corey ten Boone, who survived uh, the Holocaust and Nazi, tr- Nazi concentration camp, uh, she was looking at certain death. Uh, you know, if any, it wouldn't have been much longer and she would have died uh, had there not been a liberation uh, of the allies there in the camp. And... Um, She does live, and she went on to have a tremendously joyful life, traveled the world. She shared at Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, and many other churches all over the world and built up other believers and anyone that ever saw her. And you can go and watch YouTube clips of her. She she was full of joy and just uh, had an amazing life, sharing the peace and fulfillment that she had found in Jesus. And she shared it all over the world. But yet Hitler and the Nazis, well, their proposition of a thousand-year reign didn't happen. They were destroyed. So, in you know modern times, we've seen this verse borne out uh, just in the life of someone. It's interesting that someone as nameless and faceless as her, God blesses, and then you know these you know Nazi um, evil leaders and all that they were all wiped out and destroyed. And uh, but then again, her her sister Betsy didn't survive, and she went home to be with the Lord. Uh, she died in the concentration camp. But Jesus addressed this. Remember uh, He told the story of um, and it wasn't a parable. He, When He told the story about Lazarus and and the rich man and, and they're in Hades and Hades is a temporary uh, holding place right now uh, after the resurrection of Jesus. All the saints that were on the paradise side of Hades have been taken up into heaven. But hell is not the lake of fire. Hell is where Hades is, and that's the temporary holding place for those that have died without Christ. And so the rich man, before Jesus went back uh, and rose from the dead on the first day of the week, he went to paradise. But there was a gulf that he told about when he was in his earthly ministry, and there was a gulf between, and the, the poor man Lazarus uh, was in Abraham's bosom, and he was in paradise, and, he was healed, and he had, you know, none of the issues of poor and uh, just kind of miserable that he had on the earth. But Lazarus was in, I mean, the, the rich man was in great torment. And Jesus said to, you know, they, they talked about the fact that, um, or, you know, the rich man was talking to Abraham and said, you know, someone send to my brothers and, you know, tell them that they don't come here. And, and he said, you know, you in your lifetime had all the good things. Lazarus had the horrible, miserable life. But now he is in paradise and you now have the miserable state of eternity in that state. And so Jesus uh, verifies this this verse 8, the righteous will be delivered from trouble and it comes on the wicked instead. So even in this lifetime, sometimes we see this verse borne out. But usually, probably more the norm, we don't. But in eternity, uh, you know, if you've been bypassed for a bunch of promotions because you have a Bible on your desk, God will take care of you in the age to come, but you might have to like live with it for now, which isn't so great a suffering compared to like Lazarus or a concentration camp, or when you kind of look at things. But God levels these things out. Verse 9, The hypocrite with his mouth destroys his neighbor, but through knowledge the righteous will be delivered. James wrote uh, in his letter, speaking of the tongue, in James chapter 3, verse 9, with it we bless our God and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the similitude of God. So we're made in the image of God. Uh, you know, we have body, soul, and spirit, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. We, uh, we're in the image of God, we, we have a beginning, but like God, we won't have an end no matter whether, whether you're in hell for eternity or whether you're in heaven. But we've been made in the image of God because God's desire is that all should be saved, that all should be the children of God, the first children of God, Adam and Eve. You know, Adam was called the son of God. Then Jesus is called the second Adam. He's the, the perfect son of God. And so God desires, if you're a man or a woman, to be a son and daughter of God. He created us with this um, purpose to glorify Him. And yet James says that people, when you curse other people, you're basically cursing the creation of God. And that's not something we want to tread lightly on, that cursing other people is not within our right. The only one that can curse and condemn is God. And we can present people with truth. We can warn people. There's a big difference between warning someone and cursing someone. We are called to warn, but we're not called uh, to curse, um, and when anyone walks according to the flesh, uh, the tongue usually makes its way into the equation. When we walk according, to, when anyone walks according to the flesh, the tongue will be used to lie. It'll be used to slightly twist the truth. The tongue will be used to give a backhanded compliment, which is no compliment at all. You ever seen those? I've been the recipient of some of those before. I'm like, I'm pretty sure that wasn't a compliment. (laughs) Pretty sure that was a little bit of a dig, right? And if you know how to use your tongue, you really want to kind of fire back, right? But Jesus taught us to hold that. Some use the tongue to spread gossip. Some use the tongue to slander other people. Some use the tongue to sow doubts about people. Some use the tongue to tear down other people's work. Some use the tongue to ruin someone else's reputation. Some use the tongue to take credit for things that they shouldn't be taking credit for. Some use the tongue to curse, and the list goes on and on and on. And so James writes a good deal about the fact that the tongue is just an unruly evil and what a fire it starts. And uh, we see today uh, that the tongue finds its way into a lot of other mediums too, not just verbally, but uh, the tongue certainly is finding its way onto social media and all these other ways. Uh, uh, Once you think out loud, you might as well be speaking out loud. But hypocrites, well, they're really skilled at using the tongue. That's what it says here. It says, uh, the hypocrite with his mouth destroys his neighbor, does it all with his mouth. Able to destroy his neighbor. It's not like he blew up the house or anything like that. It's just, just using the tongue is able to destroy. And the hypocrite's very skilled at using the tongue. Now, we've all, every one of us in this room, we've had our moments of hypocrisy in life. We're all sinners. We've all had moments of, and we look back and say, well, that was pretty hypocritical of me. We've all had those moments. But the Bible, oftentimes, when it uses a word to define someone, it's the practice of their life. Uh, you know, there's too many hypocrites in the church. You know, that's a cop-out. I know many people that are Christians that have had a moment of hypocrisy, but I could never define them as hypocrites because the vast majority of their life is not hypocrisy. They have moments, but they live as best they can in the spirit to not be a hypocrite. And, you know, we all stub our toe or things like that. But the Bible clearly says some people really are. Friday, it's the pattern of a life. And only God knows who is definitively a hypocrite. That's not for you and I to, I'm trying to figure out who's a hypocrite here. That's, God knows. Some people would surprise us, perhaps, but God's the only one that really knows definitively. And I, I think, though, we've all encountered situations where we've seen hypocrisy, it's been pretty heavy And Scripture has certainly revealed several. Judas was a hypocrite. The whole time he was with Jesus, Jesus said he was a devil from the beginning. That's pretty definitive, right? The whole time he was with him, he was stealing from the treasury. Hey, we should have given this to the poor. But he really didn't care about the poor. He was money motivated. Uh, Ananias and Sapphira, Peter Peter called them both out, that uh, they were... Acting like they were the most giving people around we really love to give everything we have and they didn't. It was hypocrisy and they, and they were made a public example. I think, I think they hopefully I think they're probably both in heaven, but boy they, they were quite a lesson for the rest of the church that uh, the only slain in the spirit that I've ever seen and, and that was not a good situation. but a hypocrite can look as though they're sincere and so their neighbor might think they mean them well but They don't. Uh, Hypocrites tend to flatter. They'll pump people up, but they're entirely motivated for personal gain. In some way or shape or form, there's something for them. And they don't mind harming other people in the process. But for those of us that have come to Christ, those of us that love Christ, uh, will love others well, first, we'll love, we'll love God. Remember the first two commandments, love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. But as we love God, God gives us a heart to love others. And once we love others, we won't have to tear them down. We'll be able to trust God to take care of us without tearing other people down, without sabotaging other people, We'll we'll believe that God will take care of our needs without making other people look bad. This is the way the world, you know, that people will kind of backstab and stuff, especially in corporate America and stuff like that. You know, there's this whole mindset that if I don't do this, it's going to cost me, so it's either them or me. And Jesus said, no, you say them, and I'll take care of you in the process. We don't have to do these things. It's really the whole... uh, Verses says the just to live by faith. One of the reasons why we don't need to tear people up with our tongue is because we know that God loves them. And so if He said, Don't curse them, we're not going to. And if He said, Bless and love and even love your enemies and even those who despitefully use you, then I'll take care of you. That's what He's called us to do. He'll take care of our reputation, He'll take care of the salary and the job and whatever else it may be and all the other things. We don't have to destroy our neighbor, and we also don't use the tongue to get even. The Bible says, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, I will repay. So God will take care of all of those things. Last two verses in our time here tonight, verses 10 and 11. It says, when it goes well with the righteous, the city rejoices. And when the wicked perishes, there is jubilation. But by the blessing of the upright, the city is exalted, but it is overthrown by the mouth of the wicked. In ancient Israel, every time Israel had a godly king, the Lord blessed the nation. If you study the Old Testament, if you study the prophets, if you study uh, the times of the kings, every time Israel had a godly king, God blessed the nation. It started first with David. David, God blessed the nation. Now, even in David's case, when he sinned, the whole nation suffered. There was a Splitting you know, Absalom, his own son, you know, was against him. So, David's sin caused problems for all the people, and David took a census he wasn't supposed to take. And many people died because of that. Then came Solomon, and at the beginning of Solomon's reign, Solomon was a very godly man, and there was great blessing. And the fact of the matter is, Solomon's reign was blessed because of his father David. Uh, but at the beginning of Solomon's reign, he was a godly man, and, and there was more prosperity under the Solomon's reign than. Uh, probably any country in the history of the world, Josiah, Hezekiah, there's others, but uh, each of these kings, when they chose righteousness, the nation saw the blessings and the nation saw the fruitfulness of God's favor. So in any, in any situation, it, 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 wherever there's leadership, in the home, this is where if fathers at Calvary Chapel of Richmond Put Jesus Christ first and foremost. I mean, it's not even close. God is number one. That their family is number two. The job is number three or four. I don't know. Whatever you want to. Others actually are number three, and then and then career and all these things. You know, you have to earn a living. But you, when we put the order that God has set for seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. God will bless. It's one of the, it's the greatest hedge of protection. That a family can have is uh, that the fathers serve and love the Lord. Now, in in a home where there's not a dad, a a single mom, the same thing holds true. And and the best is when both parents are following Christ and both are serving the Lord. But if you're a single dad or a single mom, you get the same benefit. You choose, say, for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. That's not just for Joshua. It's for anyone that has to be the head of their house. But it then extends to the church. I mean, there has to be godly leadership in the church. You have to have godly pastoral leadership. You have to have godly elders. You have to have godly leaders in the church. You have to have this in any situation where there is a gathering of people. And then, of course, it is beneficial to an entire nation or a city government or whatever it may be. But when wicked leaders in Israel's history... uh, Anytime wicked leaders rose to power, and that happened far too often, the nation became more violent. The people were filled with anxiety. There was all kinds of immorality. And ultimately, the nation was plunged every time into war, slavery, or some sort of just complete defeat. It was a nightmare. Every time they chose wicked leaders to run the show. Jack Miller said, leaders should be the first repenters. If you want godly leaders, you you want dads that can say, I'm sorry, I was wrong. You want leaders that can say, you know, the Lord needs to deal with me too, or me first. You know, that was the case with men like Moses and men like the apostle Paul. He didn't look at everybody. He He said, oh, wretched man that I am, Paul said. George Herbert said, there is great force hidden in a gentle command. There is great force hidden in a gentle command. Jesus is the greatest leader the world has ever seen, and he didn't go around knocking heads, did he? The world's never seen a leader like Jesus, ever. He was gentle, but he spoke. Remember when Jesus would speak, they said he spoke as one having authority. Everyone knew he had authority, even though he was gentle, because his his confidence was in God, but his commitment was to God. I believe that America, if you look at the nation that, that we all live in, I believe that America has been blessed in so many ways down through the years, in spite of national sins, in spite of all types of things we've done wrong as a nation, I really believe, in it, and this has been... I think my opinion on this has changed over the last 20 years as I've studied history, and I've studied it from as many angles as I could probably look at it. I believe our nation has been blessed down through the years not because of a singular righteous king. A, we don't have have a monarchy. Uh, We don't have kings in America. We have three equal branches of government, which I'd say more than ever they're fighting for control. Uh, If they cease to be equal, that'll be a serious problem. They need to be equal. But uh, but then, in addition to the three equal branches of government, we have state government, we have local government, we have municipal leaders, and county and smaller you know the the smaller local government. And if you look at from that from from the equal branches of government, in Washington all the way down to the lowest levels of city and municipalities, what you really have is is a distribution of power across many different levels. And that's actually a good thing. It's it's not one central king. I say this, everything happens. But I believe that the blessings and the protections and the prosperity of our nation has been seen in part due to leaders at all of those different levels, from local all the way up, all these different levels in our country that are often quietly and faithfully serving God and serving people. The term public servant doesn't apply to the majority anymore, but there's still some that it does, and they're at all levels of our government. I've met some. I've met some of them in the prison system. I've met some in the education system. I've met some as public school principals right here in Chetraville County that I know are godly. I've met some as teachers. I've met some as police officers. I've met some as senators. And they're more, I'm actually encouraged, they're more sprinkled than I used to think. Because all you hear is the negative, everything is, you know. But there's actually a few more out there than you think. But because they're not loud and boisterous, they're just serving. God's using them as a hedge of protection. And I believe this has been happening for over 200 years. You know, Benjamin Franklin was a deist. Yeah, Thomas Jefferson cut part pages out of it. We weren't weren't protected because of them, but we were from guys like John Quincy Adams. If you want to study history, and you want to say there were others that that were standing in the gap, which is what the scriptures talk about, and so we've down through these last 200 years, we have had a little pockets, but a remnant that stretches across local, although it's federal, and across education, everything that really I believe have stood in the gap and have been the leaders that God has blessed the nation because of. Um, We have, uh, there's often, as I mentioned, they're often not known to most people outside of their own jurisdiction. You don't know the senators from Arizona or Alaska, but other people in their area do. And so in their own jurisdiction, but uh, they're known, but we don't really know them across the country. But it's these ones that meet, like, for example, up in, uh, in Washington, there are members of both the House and Senate that meet regularly. It's just not a big number. It's less than 30. I think last I saw it, or maybe not larger now, but they meet and pray all the time. They're the ones holding up the walls of the nation, not, not the mass numbers. It's this remnant across uh, these different leadership areas. In 2012... Um, an atheist group wanted to shut down the prayer caucus there in, uh, in Washington uh, that was meeting on Capitol Hill. But God says that when it goes well with the righteous, the city and the people rejoice and they do a lot better. If nothing else, the favor is on them even when they're unaware of it. Did you know that? That the, the, the world around us is benefiting from righteous people praying whether they recognize it or not. Our people today are blessed and have no earthly idea how good we have it. And God could pull the cord any time he wants. The, The whining and complaining constantly when we have it so good. I'm not saying we have it perfect. I'm not saying we have perfect leaders. We don't, not in any stretch of the imagination, but we have some godly people that are holding the line at every level. And godly leadership, it always pays dividends, it always works. It works in business, too. Take Chick-fil-A. You guys like eating there, right? You hungry? You might want to go there afterwards or something, you know? And they've even been attacked at times for their moral stance. They've even been called stupid for not being open on Sundays. But it's still the most profitable fast food business in America. They have the highest profit margin. They have the highest per-store sale, and they're taking one day out of the books. Seems to defy. God defies things like this. Money, God defies all the time. If you want to study money in the Bible, you'll see that God's ways always work. Got to give the land a rest in the seventh year? That's a whole year's profit. That doesn't make any sense. But they follow these biblical principles. Uh, I know people that know, uh, I haven't met the uh, Chick-fil-A Leadership team in Atlanta, but I know people that have talked to them and personally met them and, and had a chance to see, They are a, a godly team, and I'm not saying everybody, but at least at the most, uh, those that, are, that have set the course of the company. And um, But, you know, giving one day a week for employees to go worship, be with their families, just chill out for a day. Isn't that great? I hate when everyone else is open on Christmas. Like, can you not take a day off? I mean, really. Can the baristas not just uh, stay home today? You know, missing a day of sales hasn't hurt them a bit, has it? They've been helped actually. Biblical principles, um, ha- you know, have helped thousands of employees and owner operators. All of these things, but if as a nation, if as a nation, we at some point in time reject righteous leadership at every level, so. We will not have a righteous principal. We will not have a righteous school teacher. We will not have a righteous senator. We reject it at all level because we need to sterilize the environment of righteous people in leadership positions. If we ever go that route, America will rue the day. And people that think that that would make their world a utopia will be in for a rude, rude awakening. When the communists came in, boy... Some of the people that thought it would be good were miserable. Many of them killed. Even people that despise God, hate God, hate the Scriptures are benefiting from the righteous whether they recognize it or not. It's not heaven on earth in Iran. It's not heaven on earth in Cuba right now where they are godless governments. It's not... uh, Can you imagine the former Soviet Union? a horrible place. Can you imagine this? But Think about North Korea. Can you imagine the celebration that would take place in North Korea if the supreme leader, Kim Jong-un, an evil, evil man, uh, and his demonic regime, can you imagine if it was dethroned and replaced... I pray it. I I pray for North Korea a lot, by the way. I pray that God would completely destroy that government. Now, that Kim Jong-un gets saved? Yes. Even we must pray that he... You know, is, is, I mean, he's a wild man, but he needs to be saved. But no matter what, if that government collapsed and instead of a demonic regime, which is what it is in North Korea, was replaced by godly leadership, can you imagine the celebration in North Korea? You're talking about people that have never seen the light of day, some of them. Never seen freedom. Uh, they would give their left arm for the freedoms we have here. It would be great rejoicing. This, this would take place. The cities would rejoice. The, the, the villages would rejoice. But it's sad that many, even here in the U.S., will never appreciate the blessings they have unless they were completely taken away. Then there would be rejoicing when, because right now people would say, well, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't rejoice if we have a godly leader because uh, I like my life right, right now. Well, you've never experienced the darkness of evil leadership. So you don't have a point of reference. But if you talk to people from a place of the world where they have that, they would tell you, try and talk sense into you and say, you don't know what you're talking about. You didn't live under Nazi Germany. You didn't live in these kind of places. We rejoiced. You know, the, the, remember in Iraq when Saddam Hussein fell and the place just, I mean, people were ecstatic happy. Unfortunately, they didn't get right, you know, righteous leaders again. But if they had, it would be a different story. So we're going to have to close there, but um, we need to be the ones still standing the gap. Amen? Amen. We can't be the hypocrites. We've got to tell people that there's hope for death, and it's only in Jesus Christ, and we need to be the ones standing in the gap that there still is a blessing on this country, and there still is a blessing on everyone around us, whether they know we're any part of it or not. Amen? You still, and no matter what, you still have kids and grandkids. They're going to inherit what we pray for and live for today. Amen? Let's close in prayer.